Well, I had an interesting experience this week. Um, we've been doing a little bit of house sitting for, for relatives. And it's this lovely little plot of land that is cut into a big old wheat field. And two days ago, they started harvesting said wheat. <laughs> and everything has just been covered in this fine wheat dust from, from the harvesting. And if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that I'm allergic at the best of times. That is not the best of times. Uh, so I, I may go for tissues. I may sneeze into my microphone. I may croak. Um, but we will just pray that um, what we want to hear and what I'd like to communicate comes out of me without too much sputtering and all of that good stuff. So we are looking today at Acts chapter 2, and our friends here read some portions of that for us. Um, but I encourage you to open up your Bibles and just kind of skim along with me. If this is all kind of new to you today and you don't own your own Bible, we would love for you to have one. There's a number of them on the shelf at the back. You can grab one of those, take it home as our gift to you. And I think there's just there's a really encouraging word here in Acts chapter 2 for the church as we acknowledge this paradigm shift that we are right now in, moving out of, we hope moving out of doing ministry in a pandemic. Oh, thank you, Dave. <laughs> These people take such good care of me. But I believe there's, there's a good word in here for the big C church, so that the church of Jesus Christ in all of its beautiful diversity, as well as all of its local expressions like, like yourselves. As we dig into this chapter, we find that it really kind of serves as a transition point between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of his church. It's one chapter, but it's got some really important things to say to us. And I bet if I were to ask you or all of you watching at home, what is the mission of the church? What is the purpose of the church? There might be almost as many different answers or phrased different ways as there are people with us and watching along at home. You know, maybe you'd say that the purpose of the church, its mission is to introduce people to the gospel of Christ. Maybe you'd say that the mission of the church is to be Jesus' hands and feet to those around us, you know, to serve the people around us in our community, our families, our world, in a way that makes things more reflective of the principles of Jesus' kingdom. And I think this passage in Acts 2 shows us that it's a combination of those two things, plus at least one more critically important ingredient. So let's look at three areas this morning that Luke, the author of Acts, what he presents is kind of a, a holistic view of how to be the church. There's three pieces of the story here in Acts 2. So we'll look at verses 1 to 13 first. And I always like to set the scene. You know, what's kind of been happening up to the point at which we pick up the story in Scripture? So if we back up a little bit to Acts chapter 1, Luke tells about the ascension of Jesus, so he's no longer bodily with people, and the fact that Jesus had promised his followers that they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. We sang about that and we prayed about that already this morning. 
So here at the opening of chapter 2, we find the disciples and a lot of other people, they're gathered at Jerusalem for this thing called the Festival of Weeks, also known as, as Pentecost, and that's a word that we're more familiar with. And we equate, in our time, Pentecost with, with this coming of the Holy Spirit, that story that was read for us, the rushing of the wind and the coming of the tongues of fire. But its origin is a celebration of the 50th day of the Jewish Passover, which is why people from all over the place had kind of made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem here from lots of different places. As we get to verses 2 and 3, the place where the apostles and a number of other people are, it's filled with that sound of the rushing wind and then the fire comes. And if we rewind to the Old Testament, fire often shows God's presence. So you might be familiar with the story from the book of Exodus, God's presence with his people in a pillar of fire guiding them through the wilderness. The tongues of fire here in Acts, I think this is another clue that this passage of scripture marks a turning point. In the Old Testament, God's presence, whether it's literally in that pillar of fire or as his presence resting on a chosen specific people, Israel, that divine presence rested on a nation. In this passage here in Acts 2, we see a change. God's presence, represented by these tongues of fire, it descends on individuals, and that's a change. The New Testament scholar Richard Legeniker puts it this way. At Pentecost, a new model of redemption was established as a characteristic for life in the new covenant. One that while incorporating both individual and corporate redemption begins with the former in order to include the other. And I love what he says there. Redemption comes to individuals, but those individuals are then kind of tasked to be a catalyst to going out and making disciples of nations. So it's really a reversal from God working his plan of redemption from a nation outward to working it through individuals to others. So we make our way to verse 4. We find these individuals who are present. They're speaking in tongues. And this is not what we often think about when we, we hear the phrase speaking in tongues today. And there's lots written in Scripture about this spiritual language of praise, this charismatic language of praise that we, we hear about. And you can look up 1 Corinthians and have a read through that to learn a little bit more about that spiritual gift. And it's a gift that lots of Christians still have today. But the speaking of tongues that takes place here in Acts chapter 2, it means something different. And we've already learned that there was many Jewish people from many different places that they'd come to Jerusalem for this festival and they'd come from what we'd call the, the diaspora, which is just a fancy scholarly way of identifying people of a certain culture or ethnic heritage living away from their traditional homeland. So these are Jewish people who live elsewhere. And because they live elsewhere, they speak a number of different languages. Yet what they're hearing as the apostles and others speak with these tongues of fire over their heads... They're hearing the languages of the diaspora. They're hearing kind of their, their home language. 
And I think that's a really interesting point. You know, most people living in the Jewish diaspora, those living away from Jerusalem, they would have been reasonably familiar with Greek as kind of the, the common tongue of that region at that time. So you would think it would have been simpler, easier, quicker for those trying to deliver this message to speak in Greek. But here's the thing. Speaking this message, this message of Jesus in Greek, would have been functioning from within their own skills. They would have been using their own skill sets, leaning on their own abilities. And maybe some people would have heard the message. But I think a lot more people might have listened to some Galilean speaking in Greek, this radical message of this Jesus that is new. And they might have thought, well, what a bunch of nuts. And if we look at verse 13, some of them sort of had that impression. You know, it says, these guys, they've had a little bit too much of the wine. But we also need to be mindful of what verse 12 says. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? They see the work that the Holy Spirit is up to. They're amazed by it and they ask, what does this mean? And you can tuck this under your hats as our first takeaway today. When we're considering the mission of the church, when we consider how to face the challenges ahead of us and doing things in a new way, how will we do that in a way that leaves people amazed and perplexed and asking, what on earth is going on at New Life Church in Collingwood? And they'll be amazed and perplexed and wondering because of what the Holy Spirit is pouring out on the people here and pouring out through the people here. So in essence, we don't want to get the cart ahead of the proverbial horse. We want to plead for and confess our need for the Spirit instead of leaning on the skills that we have, that he's, even skills that he's gifted us with. We want to confess our need for the Spirit to partner with us and lead us in the work that he has for us. So we don't want to skip straight to doing the work of evangelizing, of sharing this message of Christ with this growing community around us. We want to wait on the Spirit. And that brings us to the second and the largest section of this passage in Acts 2. And it's what Bible scholars consider to be the very first evangelistic sermon of the New Testament church. And it's spoken by the Apostle Peter, who was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. We're not going to take the time to read the whole thing, though I encourage you to, to take that home and, and read it. But I want to paraphrase. And we can break Peter's sermon down into a few small bite-sized pieces. And as we do that, there's a thought that I want you to keep in mind. Beyond the evangelistic content of Peter's sermon, I think there's some things in here that are being communicated to us about how to evangelize. In the first section from verses 14 to 21, Peter does something important. He shows that he knows the audience he's speaking to. His job is to take these people who are amazed and perplexed and wondering what was going on here and convince them of the radical message of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And he very wisely starts by going to one of Israel's prophets. And this is his way of saying, no, folks, these guys that you're hearing, they're not drunk with wine. This unusual thing that you see happening here today, it's a fulfillment of our prophecies. And then Peter backs it up by quoting the prophet Joel. Verses 17 to 21 here in Acts 2 are quoted right from Joel chapter 2. And on the surface, we might be thinking, hey, that's great news. Step number one to evangelizing, to sharing the gospel of Christ with others, is go quote prophecy. And there are days, as we sort of puzzle through how to do ministry to our culture, especially now that things have changed so much these last couple of years with online ministry and, and, and people's rhythms of life changing, there are days when I really wish it was as easy as going downtown, cracking open the Bible, and just quoting me some Joel out loud to people. But I'm not sure that would be exactly contextually Appropriate. And, and here's what I mean by contextually appropriate. If I were to ask you as a group of good Canadian folks how you go about ordering a mid-sized coffee with two creams and two sugars, what would you say? A medium double-double, that's right. But does that translate everywhere? If I pull through the drive-through at the A&W, which I do from time to time on my way to work here, that same beverage is called a regular double-double, which is not to be confused with a regular at Tim Hortons, which means one cream and one sugar, versus a regular-sized cup at the A&W, which is the size of a medium cup at Tim Hortons. You with me? And you know it gets weirder, right? What if I want that same beverage at Starbucks? How the heck do you order that? Okay, here it is. Sometimes I just go in there and I point at the picture on the menu and I say, that, that thing right there. But here's how you order a medium double-double at Starbucks. And this is what they'll say to you in that friendly tone through the, the speaker at the drive-thru if you say medium double-double. It is a grande pike with two sugar in the raw and two splashes, splashes of cream. <laughs> a grande pike with two sugar in the raw and two splashes of cream. Well, other than the fact that I may have a caffeine problem, what have we learned? <laughs> it, it's the same beverage, more or less, but three really different and not so transferable Contexts. What you say at one place isn't going to get you the result that you desire at the other two. And for Peter, Joel, and all the other prophets of Israel were absolutely contextually appropriate. In fact, you see them quoted all throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as well, for the same reason. Because the prophets of Israel spoke to the desperate situations that Israel often found themselves in into the hope that they were promised for their future deliverance by their Messiah. So Peter's use of Joel's prophecy here in Acts 2 is his way of saying, you know, look, folks, 
These things that Joel said would come to pass, these things you're counting on as your hope and your salvation, you're seeing those things take place right before your very eyes today in this place. So it makes it a contextually appropriate explanation. Now, I want you to take my next comment in the spirit in which it's intended. I fear that we'd probably confuse more people than we'd make curious by randomly quoting ancient Israelite prophecy to folks on the street. And that doesn't mean that the prophetic writings aren't useful for us, because as good BIC folk, we believe that all of the scripture from front to back is authoritative, but it means we need to be mindful of the time and of the place and of the context. Here's a question I want us to mull over. As a New Life family, looking forward to post-pandemic ministry, planning for the future, what's going to be a contextually appropriate way for us each of us as individuals, us as a New Life family, what's going to be an appropriate way for us to explain the hope that we have in Jesus to others? You know, no other group of believers on the face of the earth is New Life Church in Collingwood. And so I believe God has a special part of his mission, a unique part of his mission that only we can do in a contextually appropriate way that he will equip us for by the work of his spirit. For the sake of time, because there's lots of goodies in this chapter, I'm going to briefly paraphrase the second section of, of Peter's sermon. It's really all about establishing the meaning of Jesus' identity, who he is as Israel's Messiah, as the Messiah for all, his crucifixion, the meaning of his resurrection, which is just radical for the listeners. Why Jesus came in human form as a man. And how this all stems out of God's intricate and premeditated plan for the redemption of all of humanity. And why Jesus bodily departed the world instead of continuing to walk present with people in order to make way for the Holy Spirit. It is a theologically dense and beautiful sermon. But for now, I want to jump all the way down to verse 36, because it, man, it's a doozy. If we're going to evangelize as individuals and as a church, I think this is the main thing. And verse 36 says this, So let everyone... In, that should be in, that's my typo. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. And some translations call that Lord and Christ. And to Peter's audience, the title Lord identifies him as divine, it identifies him as God. And that was a huge deal in Peter's context, and it's still a very big deal today. And it's one of the claims that got Jesus crucified. You know, one simply didn't wander around in ancient Israel claiming to be God. That was a very dangerous thing to do. And this is why Peter, leading up to this verse, has taken such great care to provide proof to people that Jesus is who he claimed 
he was. For us, as we look how to sort of parse that truth that Jesus is God for people, I think there's some good words that Jesus leaves us with as a conversation starter. And these are from John chapter 15, 8 to 11. Jesus is talking with Philip. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, God, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In short, if we want to explain to people what God is like, use the example of Jesus. Use his words. Look at how he treated people. Study passages like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7 to understand Jesus' values, the principles of his kingdom that he talks so much about. And I think that might be just about one of the most powerful evangelism tools there is. It's not all of it, but I think it's an accessible starting point. That brings us down near to the end of Peter's sermon. And the third section is just one short verse. It says this, when the people heard this, all that Peter had been saying, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I think if we want to do good evangelism, there might be nothing more important to understand than what happens in this one short verse. When the people heard the things that were being said, they were cut to the heart. And that's just what it sounds like. They were moved emotionally. They heard what Peter had been saying about the fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus' identity in a contextually appropriate way. They heard what Peter had said about God's plan for redemption through Jesus and about the identity and nature of Jesus and it hit them in their feelings, their emotions. And Maybe you recognize moments like that. If you're a teacher, maybe you recognize that in your students, you know, when, when it comes together for them. Maybe you recognize that from doing personal evangelism, sharing your Jesus story with people that you know. Just that moment when you see it in their eyes, that it's hit them. The light bulb comes on. And then the question, what shall we do with this? So if you're keeping notes, you can label verse 37 as the moment they were ready. There was a readiness. Before we get to Peter's answer to their question... I want to pause for just a second and consider everything that's led up to that moment of readiness. There was that outpouring of the Holy Spirit that amazed people and caused them to wonder. The identity of Jesus was presented in an appropriate way that people could understand and would have impact on them in their context. God's plan for redemption and Jesus' part in it and Jesus' identity as God, that's presented 
there's the emotional impact, that light bulb moment. Then the question, what should we do? And it's only then that Peter tells them what they should do. In verse 38, he says, repent and be baptized. And I want us to pay super close attention to how far down in the chapter and how far down into Peter's sermon that statement is. Repent and be baptized. It doesn't come before some careful work has been done to tell the story of who Jesus is and where he fits into God's plan. It doesn't come before there's an emotional readiness, and it certainly doesn't come before there's been a movement of the Holy Spirit among the people. It happens after all of that. Which brings us to another question I want us to be thinking over. What does this tell us about our efforts to engage in evangelism as the church? You know, as a New Life Church family, planted here in what's an increasingly diverse community, what careful work is there to be done in our unique way, partnering with the Holy Spirit to lead people to that moment when they're ready to ask, what shall we do before we tell them, repent and be baptized? And that's something that our leadership team is working its way through as we look towards the fall and as we look towards 2023 and beyond. So I'd invite you to be in prayer for our staff and our church board as we think through some of that stuff. And, and be in prayer and ask the Spirit to speak to you about where is God wanting to take us as a New Life Church family in the work that he has for us. We're going to give you some opportunity in the fall at some town hall meetings uh, to voice that, to interact with us as we discern, as good BIC people again, discern together in community what it is the Spirit is saying and where he would like us to go to minister and to share the gospel of Christ with this diverse, growing, and beautiful community around us. Before we wrap up, I want to look at the final and the shortest of the sections in this chapter, verses 42 to 47. In verse 42, there's a list of things here that it says the community of the church, this community of followers they were devoted to. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to their fellowship together, to the breaking of bread. I love that. We can be devoted to having meals together. And they were devoted to prayer. And this word devoted in English, it means things like loyal and dedicated and caring, attentive maybe. But there's a nuance in the Greek that English misses, and it adds a little something extra special. The same word translated as devoted for us is translated as constantly back in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. In that verse, the disciples joined together constantly in prayer, if you can imagine what that was like. Luke uses this word six times in the book of Acts, and each time it connotes persistence and faithfulness, a sense of continuing with one another. So it's really no small thing to say in 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to prayer. They did it persistently, in a constant way, in a continuing way. 
to me, that reads as though it sort of permeated their entire lives together. Which brings us to the other key word here, and that word is fellowship. That's not a word that we use in English a whole awful lot outside of the church. And I actually get a kick out of how the church has managed to turn the word fellowship into a verb. You know, I'm going to go to the building, the church building, and I'm going to fellowship with those people. That's a bit of a silly way to look at it, but it's really not far off the mark. The whole concept we're looking at here in fellowship is very active. It's not a passive thing. The Greek word here, and you might be familiar with this in Christian circles, the Greek word is koinonia. The Apostle Paul, in his letters to the various early churches, he uses that word a lot. But here in Acts 2.42, it's the only time that Luke ever uses it. One thing I found about good Bible study is that if the author steps out of his normal way of phrasing things, it's really worth stopping to pay attention to that. And Luke does it here by choosing that word for fellowship. This word has a really intimate connotation to it. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it's used to describe the kind of relationship that believers have with the Holy Spirit. That's intimate. It's also used to describe the intimate experience of participating together in the bread and the cup as we observe communion with one another. And in its secular Greek sense, it was used to describe the sharing of one's possession with others. So for Luke to use it here to describe the kind of community that the early believers were engaged in, it's not an ordinary kind of just, you know, hanging out with one another at a place. If we look at the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, all of the activities of the Christian church are noted in the plural, not in the singular. It's things they do together. Romans 12, 5, Paul again writes, In Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. They're together. John Wesley, whose theology is one of the strands in the mix of our, our BIC makeup, he says this, There is no religion but social religion, no holiness but social holiness. Doing things together in fellowship. So here's one last question for us to mull over this week. In our time and place, which, if we're honest with one another, this is a really individualistic social age, how does the kind of intimate community we're talking about here, how does that play out? Important question for us is into what kind of a community? As new life, are we inviting those that we've had a chance to introduce Jesus to, to make them wonder about, to have them asking questions? What kind of community are we inviting people into? What does it mean to truly consider these your people? Not just a church that you attend and not some people that you sit near, on Sunday morning. What does it really mean to be family? People that you're devoted to persistently, constantly, 
and in a continuing way. I was asking myself this week in preparation, does this community permeate the rhythm of my life? Does it permeate our lives through all the thicks and the thins, the ups and the downs, the goods and the bads, the pandemics and the healthy times? And dare I say it, when we agree and when we disagree, I think that's an important one. As we find from this one chapter that there's an awful lot that goes into being the church. We've learned three things. That we need to consider doing things that will leave people amazed and perplexed, asking questions because of the work of the Holy Spirit on us and in us. We don't want to jump ahead of the Spirit. We learned that we need to consider how we do evangelism in contextually appropriate ways that can lead to light bulb moments when people will ask, what shall I do now? And we've learned that we need to foster this persistently devoted fellowship community into which we can invite those who are discovering Jesus around us. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence. We know that you are here around us always. But in inviting your presence, we say to you, our minds, our emotions, our spirits, they're open to you. And Spirit, would you speak to each of us as individuals and to all of us corporately as a new life family? What are your plans? Teach us, show us how to be effective instruments in your hands for those plans. Your plans for this beautiful community around us. Give us wisdom as we discern these things. As we look to opening up our doors and to going out, inviting others in. How do we contextualize Jesus for people who may never have heard his name? how do we be the kind of people who are so devoted to one another in the fellowship of this new life community that it just permeates every cell, every moment of the rhythm of our lives? Spirit, would you teach us these things? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for being with us this morning, everybody, in this last Sunday of July. Next Sunday, we are gathering, weather permitting, out on the lawn. We enjoyed our last outdoor service at the beginning of this month, so we are looking forward to doing that again. I am passing the baton off to Paul for a few weeks. He's been gone. Now I'm going to be gone. So if you need anything, if you don't like what I said today, paul at newlifecollingwood.com. Thanks for being with us. Have a great week, everybody.